0: Hello everyone and welcome to this Sense Network podcast. This is the first in a six-part series on advisor development, which was recorded at our recent National Advice Forum. This episode features a strategic update from our chairman, Phil Young, a session on developing new talent with President and Member Director at the PFS, Adam Owen, and the first of two advisor panels, which was an opportunity for Sense members to discuss issues such as the advice gap and succession planning. The panel was hosted by our membership director, Tim Davis, and alongside him sat Adam Owen and members of the Sense community, James Wetherill of Weatherall's, Jane Gow of Clearcut Financial Planning, Nick Howe of Opal Financial Management, and Steve Hendry of Stonegate Wealth Management. If you're a UK-based, forward-thinking financial planner and interested in growing your business, get in touch at sense-network.co.uk. But for now, please enjoy the podcast.
1: Yeah, welcome everybody. um, Formally to um, our inaugural uh, National Advisor Forum. I I think uh, we've got an absolutely fabulous day lined up. We've got some brilliant speakers um, uh, and and some others. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Sorry, Adam, couldn't resist. (laughs) Um, And um, um, we'll 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 just very briefly run through the agenda for today. I'm not going to talk it through because time isn't on our side. But we've got uh, quite a full uh, um, day planned. We'll break for lunch before coming back to yet another full afternoon. So there is quite a lot for us to get through. Um, I, I've just whizzed through that agenda. I appreciate you might want to look at it in a bit more detail. It's on a, a, on a board just outside the door, a bit like a wedding if you do want to have a quick look. Um, so just refer to it there. Um, uh, we've also got some brilliant stands outside. I know quite a lot of you probably had a chance to, to meander around there. Please do go and, and look around and talk to the guys on those stands. Um, we, we've tried, along with the content and the, the stands, to, to not cover off all of the, the usual suspects. We've not got a load of provider content. Um, we, we've, we've tried to, to mix it up with some interesting other uh, uh, providers and, uh, and, and, uh, and exhibitors. So there is some really useful stuff to engage with there, and I'd really encourage you to do that. Um, so... Um, <coughs> just before I hand over to Phil um, I think one last little point of, of order um, we're not aware of any fire alarms um, so please uh, you know if if that does happen um, we'll uh, exit calmly uh, accordingly but um, um, but we shouldn't be expecting anything and the obvious always uh, um, a reminder for people please if you can make sure your mobiles are off and so forth that'd be really appreciated especially the people on the stand. (laughs) (laughs) That was really bad. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so without further ado, I'll hand over to Phil uh, for the first session on our day. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, John. I won't be very
2: quick. You'll be relieved to hear. Um, I thought I'd just give a quick update as to where we are and also what's gone on over the course of the past um, 12 months or so. There's been a fair amount of change. I haven't got time to do questions right now, but I'll be at the Sense stand for pretty much all day, so feel free to come over and um, ask any questions that you like. There's, there's not really any secrets, to be perfectly honest with you, in terms of what we're going through and what the what the plan is. Um, I know there's always a kind of sort of suspicion within networks, nationals, bigger companies, that there's something that's going on behind the scenes that nobody knows about. In, in all honesty, I'm, I'm quite happy to answer any questions you've got along the way. <clears throat> the first thing I want to point out, that, that networks seem to be back in fashion, which I never thought um, I'd actually say. It's... Um, I've spent quite a lot of my career working with directly authorised firms um, as well as networks as well with the likes of Sense along the way. Networks seem to be really popular at the moment. When I've been out talking to um, various different outfits and different businesses, uh, in particular regards to trying to get access to capital, one of the things I've talked about and I mentioned um, this time roughly last year was that we were going to look at ways of bringing capital into sense and into the membership to to help facilitate buying and selling of firms. And I've I've had quite a lot of discussions on that, that point. We're not quite there at the moment. Interestingly, most people that I've sat down and approached and talked to about have said, yeah, that's great. We'd like to buy you or we'd like to invest in you or we think networks are really interesting. What is it you're trying to do? The catch generally and the reason why networks are back in fashion and maybe sense isn't apart from from you guys is that. Most people are looking very much at vertically integrated models at the moment, and independent networks aren't necessarily in vogue. So you'll see lots of headlines about um, huge amounts of acquisition activity going on in the market around networks, around nationals, and around a lot of advisors as well. What's sat behind a lot of that, um, in particular in my discussions with private equity firms of late, is they're all looking to try and create the same model. They're all looking to basically try and create a vertically integrated firm acquire a network or acquire a national or or buy advisors, plug it into their own DFM with their own uh, model portfolios or their own funds or whatever, and basically try and get through whatever means everybody to try and uh, push business in the same direction. (coughs) That isn't what we're trying to do with Incense, as well, you know. So we've been very successful over the years following the same course of basically supporting independent advice and facilitating you guys um, in, in making choices and options in a grown-up way as to what you want to do. It makes our job tougher at times. We have to ask quite a lot of questions. We have to get involved in investment propositions with you as well. Um, but we, we continue to support that. We will continue to support that in the future as well. So whatever you see out there and the things that we're doing, first of all, don't get suspicious that we're trying to change tech and change the model. We did put together a plan at the back end of last year, and it did involve chats to a lot of firms um, as well as a lot of staff as well in, in, internally. We came up with a with a branding model. I can, I can chat through this sort of stuff with you as well. Um, we had a look at the financial model and what we would do and how it would work and stress testing whether it, what would happen if it broke. Um, and the results that came through was we didn't need to do a huge amount to the business. And again, yeah, this is me kind of an, announcing the fact that what you're going to see over the course of the next 12 months or so isn't anything radically different from what we've done so far. The first and probably most painful bit that we had to do was to, to change the charging model that we had. So we made an announcement of that in uh, January 2019. Um, that's gone through now. Um, it's not a huge change, but it's something that we had to, had to do to reflect the fact that the business and most of your businesses out there, not every single business, but most of you, have now become focused more on looking after existing clients. Probably about 80% of the activity that I see in advisory businesses is looking after existing clients, and 20% of it might be dealing with new business along the way. Um, So we've tried to change the charging model that we've got to reflect that. And we're now in discussion, certainly from a compliance point of view, with how we can change the emphasis from a regulatory perspective as well into looking at what's happening with annual reviews and making sure that those are are, are well looked after and that we can review those things rather than just focusing solely on, on new business. We need to recruit a few more ARs. So rather than constantly imposing greater charges on you guys, we need to get out there and recruit more people because that keeps the cost down for everybody. That doesn't mean any radical change over a five-year period to the model and to the business that we've got. So we think we can go from roughly around 104 advisors, and it's about 110 now, up to about 186 uh, AR firms. But roughly, we we end up with an average of about, I think it's two or three advisors per firm. Um, A lot of um, one-man sole traders out there as well. So this isn't a massive change to the model. And the growth in the, in the, um, the headcount of the staff isn't going to have to change that radically, but we have factored all that in as well. I like having this because it gives us a plan to work towards, and then we we'll recut it for each budget going further forward. Um, and we need to keep out of trouble. It's pretty straightforward as a network, that's probably our primary responsibility. So if we do those three things, we've already done the first one, we're already on the way with regard, regards to recruiting ARs, and we're on plan for that, we're on budget for this year. Um, and as long as we keep out of trouble, we just had the, um, the FCA visit on DB transfers, for example, which has got, we haven't had it back in writing yet, but it went as well as it could be expected along the way, which is different from a lot of other people's experience out there as well. So that's all working for us so far, and we are on plan as it stands right now. The other things that we've added in, in terms of, sort of people development and things that we need to, to add into the business for a bit more longer-term growth, really about adding a bit more infrastructure into how we operate, uh, we will be bringing in a head of monitoring to support Jason that looks after the team, the farm far monitoring team, because he's got too many direct reports coming into him arguably at the moment for it. So there will be a new person that goes in there. We've already brought in an operations manager, which is Alan, somewhere in the room. don't know if he's, or he's probably out there doing operational things. <laughs> so he, he's looking at all of our internal processes, HR, um, uh, facilities management, all that sort of stuff that goes on that's been bits of other people's jobs, In particular, Leanne, who isn't here today because she had a baby two two weeks ago. Um, <clears throat> all that sort of stuff that goes on in a business as you're growing a little bit that was passed on to part-time jobs for everybody else will just coalesce them into one poor sod's job Uh, to deal with all all that sort of stuff. And if there's anything that i go through today around the planning side of things or any chats that you want to have with Alan about operational stuff, he's an ops expert, not necessarily from financial services, but he's got experience in financial services. He's on hand if you want to basically just run a few ideas by him and and chat to him to see what what, what he would recommend or what he thinks. Uh, And we've also already got in, as Leanne's on um, maternity leave, um, a replacement for her, uh, interim, FD, um, and has been working as financial controller for us for a few months um, to phase that in so far, which is uh, Carly, who's the queen of spreadsheets. I don't know if you... Is Carly in? Or is she outside? There's Carly at the back. If you need to know anything about Excel spreadsheets, absolutely loves that that kind of stuff. Um, A bit weird, but, you know, feel free to ask her. So we're on plan so far. My own attitude to risk, um, generally in, in businesses, is what is the risk of us not hitting that plan, which is the reverse of the way in which a lot of people... A lot of people sit in a room and just start to think about risks and you start trying to come up with everything that you can possibly conceive of happening. Fundamentally, my approach to the way in which sentences run is we've got a plan, we've got a business plan, what are the things that will stop us from hitting that plan and what are the real risks to us as a business that will get there? And it obviously involves all the risks that you'd expect it to be in there. Um, but it includes a load of other ones as well. It just sharpens the mind. If you're going through that process within your own business of thinking about risk, when you're doing it in isolation and doing it in a very kind of academic exercise, it's difficult to, to drag those things out. If you think about what's the risk of you not hitting your business plan, it focuses you a lot more on what those problems will be. We do spend a lot of time. One of my observations in the past 12 months is we've spent an incredible amount of time behind the scenes doing stuff that you probably don't see or recognize and probably don't value because you don't understand that it's going on, for example. Um, One of the things that we have been looking at so over the course of the past 12 months is investments, investment propositions, how we can sharpen things up. And we've spent quite a bit of time. This is is just an example of what goes on behind the scenes, um, looking at DFM run model portfolio services, which I've had some concerns about how it works. And there's obviously agency agreements and things like that in place at the moment. This is just one example, but it's a real example um, uh, these are all actual clauses. I haven't kind of made some of them up or adopted them in any kind of a way. So one of the, the, um, the agreements that I, I took a look at from a DFM um, basically said this. It's a, a DFM that runs model portfolio services for advisors. Um, so it says the DFM's role under the agreement doesn't ex- extend to execution, dealing, custody, administration. doesn't agree to a load of things. And it basically says Aviva, who is the platform they're referring to, that you can access it um, in these circumstances um aviva's the 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 uh, the platform that is responsible and on the hook for all of that and i thought really um i'll do a little bit more digging on this one we've sent out now a matrix that looks like this to to all the the main dfms out there it's maybe not every single one but the main ones that people are either wanting to use or the main mainstream retail ones out there it covers more than just this. This is just one page of it, so i will have this available for you to have a look at. It basically just says what's the responsibilities and who's on the hook for which particular actions when it comes to um, DFM run model portfolio services. Uh, as you can see on this one, this particular DFM filled it in for us and said execution of the trades on the platform, it's the responsibility of the platform to do it. Fine, so that's consistent with what they put in their own terms of business, the terms of business that you're being asked to sign and we're being asked to sign as a network. I then thought, that, w- that should be enough for me, but I don't really trust anybody out there when it comes to these sorts of things. And I know what lawyers are like, in-house lawyers, that just want to deny responsibility for everything. So I read through, the, through Aviva's own. It says your DIM, your discretionary investment manager, is responsible for checking the suitability in order and blah, blah, blah. blah. Uh, and it's responsible for ensuring that it's correct as well. Aviva is not responsible for any loss incurred your investment portfolio than any errors by your discretionary investment management. That felt like it was at odds with what I've been told in the previous one for it. You could argue that it's slightly different in terms of the word and it's covering slightly different scenarios but it made me feel instantly uncomfortable Uh, and I've still had no real response other than can you send me over your template thing from from the, the DFM about this particular one. So there's a liability gap I think there in all of these sorts of things and it takes quite a lot of work behind the scenes to read through everyone. I've spent literally hours plowing through individual DFM agreements because they are all different. And and they're all slight. Some of them are good. um, Pretty much all of them are flawed in some way. And some of them are genuinely terrible like this one. That's before I even went to the other clauses in there. Um, So in the the DFM's terms of business, it also says for 10% reporting, that the the advised platform Aviva will inform customers of it. Aviva couldn't. They had no functionality, no capability until two weeks ago. And one week ago, it failed. So at no point have they been able to to guarantee that they can inform customers about the 10% drop. Um, 4.2, it says, whatever happens, you're responsible for notifying as the advisor, the end client for it. So if, if Aviva can't do it, which they can't, that's a complete fabrication on there. You're now contractually on the hook if you sign that agreement for it. And I, and I get why you wouldn't read through all of these lines of, of words and text. This is something that we're doing on your behalf. Um, and another clause in there, so the DFM has no reliability for anything, ever. <coughs> 8.2, you, as an advisor, indemnify us for everything, ever. This isn't uncommon, and this is the sort of stuff that we're coming up against on a day-to-day basis, so... When it looks like we're being obstructive or slow or or struggling to turn things around at times, it's because this is the sort of things that we're doing in the background to try and protect you guys as well as ourselves along the way and checking some of the detail in it. And detail is what we're good at. So networks are back in fashion. Uh, A lot of people have gone down the route of um, vertical integration. There are advantages to vertical integration in the sense that if you've only got one in-house thing, you don't have to check all this crap the whole time, to be perfectly honest with. That seems to be the main appeal to me of it this, um, at this moment in time. There are advantages to doing things in-house, and that's something that I think that we should consider and look at to say, is there a way of doing something or even creating our own contracts and outsourcing it that will make things easier for ourselves? But it's not about vertical integration as, 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 as we know it, um, as other firms out there are trying to do it. I will, as I say, be outside if you want to have a chat about any of those sorts of things and, and, and any other bits and pieces you want to co- uh, cover off. But in the meantime, I shall hand over to—I'll let John hand over to. I was Adam. Say, it's like Sorry. passing
1: the
3: clicker out. Yeah, I show, know. Really, Thank
4: Thanks.
3: you very much. So um, today, what I wanted to do was just spend a few minutes, just chatting through. Really, um, let's get past that. Just chatting through what I see when I'm out and about um, doing events like this, really. And, and what I see when I'm out about doing events like this is exactly what I'm seeing now, of course, because I stare out into rooms full of um, happy, engaged, excited people. So thank you for that. And some at the back there as well. But um, I have spent a long time, or a lot of time over the last three years, should I say, actually um, standing up and talking in front of rooms full of financial planners, and then in conference sessions spending a lot of time talking with those financial planners about the challenges that they have. And um, today, you're probably going to see quite a lot of data from some of the other speakers. We've got some great technical speakers coming along after me. And the data that they will provide will be accurate, and it will be sourced, and it will be researched. So I didn't think you'd need that from me today. So I've got what I would call an artist's impression of what I see. If you can't see the small print at the bottom, it says not to scale or mathematically accurate or based on anything other than what I see with my eyes. But I see this with my eyes an awful lot. And this, for me, is where we are demographically. It's a demographic structure of our profession right now. I joined the profession in the mid-1990s. And back in the mid-1990s, it took us two weeks to get qualified. We were hot housed at hotels in London and um, completed the FPC. And um, at that point, I was given training. I was given product training. The final day, after I'd passed my final exam, I got a day of product training on a thing called a maximum investment plan. (laughs) There we go. Yes, of course. And then I was given a number of things, some of which I had to buy myself, in all fairness. I had a briefcase, which I filled with brochures about a maximum investment plan. I had a pocket full of 20 pence pieces, because if I couldn't find a client's house, I'd need to phone them. And so we actually carried actual cash to do that with. I had um, a boot full of A to Z maps. Nothing more frustrating than reaching the end of an A to Z and still having a mile and a half to go to a client's house because you'd have to drive three miles back to a petrol station to buy the A to Z that you needed to actually get there. And a torch. Because usually, particularly this time of year, you were arriving late at night, and I walked up a number of drives to the wrong house um, without actually having my torch. And that was sort of what we did. And it didn't matter what the question was in those early days. The answer was, of course, a maximum investment plan. Until I'd been back the following Friday, and the following Friday I then got some additional training on something else, and that was sort of how it worked. There are some chuckles of familiarisation to that, and the profession has come a long, long way. But one of the things that we haven't done, with all of the significant changes in the profession, qualification requirements, adjustments to professionalism, one of the things that we haven't done is kept pace with the requirements for recruitment. Back then in the mid-1990s, there were over 200,000 people who would in some way have described themselves as some sort of financial advisor. They may have been specialists, but they would have been giving people some level of advice. Today, we have something in the region of 26,000. That level of reduction in numbers, if it was in the wild, would actually put us at risk of extinction. Now, I'm not in any way um, looking to in any way suggest, and please don't suddenly take to Twitter now and start tweeting. Adam Owen says financial planners are about to become extinct. So I'm not, but it's a very significant drop. Now, some of that drop needed to happen. But I think we've gone past a point where actually we've maybe gone a little bit too far. And we're seeing now that we have two things. We have an advice gap and we have a succession gap. And that succession gap is one of the hardest things that our profession is finding to be able to actually repair. Because this, for me, is what the, the demographic model looks like at the moment. We've got a lot of people, if the top of it is people who are more experienced, shall we say, uh, as opposed to just older, um, that top of that model is still quite a lot. And then we pinch down. We pinch down to a point where, when I'm stood in front of rooms of uh, financial planners, Generally, we have fewer and fewer people as we get down to 45, down into 40, into the sort of mid-30s, and then we're beginning to recruit more people. We have woken up as a profession over the last few years. So it's a pinched model that maybe looks a little like that. This room actually is quite youthful, isn't it, compared to many of the rooms that we stand in front of. So congratulations on your relative youth. But here's the thing. Every survey that we've looked at in the last, I don't know, three, four, five years, um, looks like that, of course. That blue box there now represents the amount of the profession that is looking to retire in the next five years. And that is really significant. Dependent on what survey you read, it's around about 30%. Now, the good news is, every year for the last five years, 30% of the advisor population have been saying they want to retire in the next five years. But is that good news? For me, what that actually tells us is that the profession that helps people to retire is actually struggling because of the structures that we have in place to actually enable retirement for the people who have actually been the custodians of the profession for all these years. And that, I think, is something that we need to address, but it can't be addressed just by individual organisations doing a little bit. It's something that we need to address right the way across the piece. It's a strategic question for our profession. is how do we actually go about, first of all, attracting new talent, and then developing and retaining <coughs> new talent. And it's that retention piece. When I speak with advisors, I was chatting with uh, just one of you earlier on um, this morning, in actual fact, who said one well, of our biggest challenges is, is attracting and retaining new people to feed that pipeline within our business. Because there's a lot of competition out there, there's a lot of other things that people could be doing with their time, and in fairness to our profession, it isn't always portrayed as the most attractive, is it? And it should be. What we do is brilliant and amazing, and it's just one of the best jobs in the world to have, I believe. Um, you know, Today, there are very few ties. I had a tie on until I realized that I was probably one of the very, very few people wearing a tie today. Um, but actually, in many conferences still, it's fully suited and booted, ties all the whole nine yards. That isn't necessarily an attractive prospect to new talent. So there the things that we do just culturally that actually put us in a disadvantage when we're competing for the type of talent that we're looking to bring into the profession. But also, we don't always do a great job when we're actually representing our profession. And when I say that, I'm not in any way looking to criticise anybody in this room at all, because I think individually we do a great job. Collectively, we can sometimes take a misstep. I don't know if anyone has a Twitter account. Hands up if we've got Twitter accounts. Yeah, okay, so probably 40% of the room has a Twitter account. Um, just, Just to mention, and I'm sure everybody's across it, but it does often feel like people forget Twitter is a public forum, everybody. The people who might be your clients, the people who are reading the press about our profession, they can see what you write in Twitter. If you want to denigrate the profession, might I respectfully respectfully suggest that we actually take that somewhere else. There are forums, there are closed loops that can do that. Because there's a lot of argument and debate that goes on amongst our profession that I don't see in other professions. And again, that is one of the barriers to entry. I um, spend a lot of time in universities now. And I ask people, what is it about our profession that is less attractive to these other things that you're thinking of doing? And it's about the noise sometimes. If people are looking to join this profession, then they're going to be looking online, aren't they? They're going to be looking in social media. They're going to be looking in all of those places. And the noise that occurs can drown out the good stuff we're doing. So individually, we can do great stuff. Collectively, we can occasionally let ourselves down. But as well as that, of course, from a strategic point of view, um, we were sort of sold a pup, weren't we, as well. Anybody who remembers um, the recruitment patter of the 1990s, when many of the people in this room now are thinking maybe of retiring in the next five to ten years, we were told that actually the way to do it was to, um, to grow a business, to bring clients in under a different charging model in different circumstances, Maybe it was easier back then. And to grow assets under management, and eventually someone will come along with four, five, or six times asset under management value, and that will be it. And that would be our retirement pots. But that works if that model there is a straight line down the side. Because actually, we've got variety. And we haven't got a single event for lots of businesses happening all at the same time. But actually, when you've got 30% of the profession looking to retire in the next five years, then it's actually a buyer's market. And so organisations and firms will need to differentiate themselves far more because everybody's reaching that point at the same time. Or we need to organise succession because selling a business isn't, of course, the only option. And this is why I believe, actually, we need a strategic view of how, as a profession, we do succession. Succession isn't going to be the answer for everybody, of course. Some of you, I imagine, will have tried it, and it uh, maybe hasn't worked out. Others will be in the process of doing it, and it still might not work out. I'll talk about why that might be in a minute. And then some of you will actually be at the end of a process of succession at the moment, and congratulations for those. But I think there are at least four areas that we need to be thinking about. Acquiring new talent, building skills, developing future leaders, and then ensuring that there's actually something at the other end to fund the succession itself. And I meet a lot of firms that are going through a process of developing their new talent, and they have a loose plan, but maybe they don't have a strategic plan. Let's start at the uh, the acquisition stage then. Um, there are no um, shortage of really great people who could be joining the profession. And in fairness to this, uh, this group here in this room here, I'm looking at a lot of faces I recognise who are actually going to be the future of the profession. And so it's great to see you here today. And we can attract talent from many different ways. Of course, school leavers, graduates, second careerists. Anybody here transferred from a previous career? Yeah, loads of people. And, you know, thank you for doing so. Because ultimately there's a lot of competition out there. But you can also find existing talent and poach it, of course. I've called it transfers in. Sounds better than poaching, doesn't it? (laughs) Transfers in. So um, ultimately there's different stages in which we can interact with people. And different ways in which we can bring in that new talent. But one of the biggest challenges is um, once we've actually got that talent there, is living up to the promises that we've made at the point at which they actually start doing the job. Because although this job can be one of the the most rewarding jobs that you can have, at times it can also be a bit dull. And at times, it's quite easy to have your new talent doing stuff that isn't very exciting and doing it for longer than they would like. So managing expectations is really quite important but particularly as we move through developing skills, and all of those skills are, of course, technical, behavioural, and um, all of those softer skills, then we need to maintain trust. Trust is really important. I'll come back to why that is, I'm seeing so many challenges on trust. But, of course, if we're building succession, then we need to be thinking of our talent and the people that we're recruiting and developing, not simply as financial planners. One of the challenges I think we have as a profession strategically, is that one of the things that we haven't done over these last 20 years is we haven't actually taught strategic management and leadership thinking. And so although everybody in this room is doing a great job of running your business and doing your best and absolutely, and I am not in any way criticizing that, I spent years running advisory businesses and the challenge I had was that I made loads of mistakes. But only after going and doing the academic study and that side of things, I realised that I could have saved myself an awful lot of pain. So I think from a development point of view, identifying future leaders and actually working on that leadership and strategic thinking piece is important. Because that brings in corporate governance. Of course, we've got SN and CR and a whole other series of things. The responsibility for new people and existing people in the profession moving up to take over to facilitate succession is actually far greater than it has probably ever been. And it's probably not going to get any less. So again, it's quite off-putting if you think all of that level and weight of responsibility that you're taking. Of course, some of that can be mitigated with a network, but there is still individual responsibility. And that takes me back to this just for a moment, in as much that one of the things I don't see a huge amount of is people between 35 and 45. I see a lot of over 45-year-olds. I see more people coming in at this middle uh, bottom bracket in terms of the younger end of things. But I don't see people in that middle bit because we sort of seem to have forgotten to recruit just after I got into the profession for a few years. The life companies pulled out of recruitment, the banks pulled out of recruitment, they reduced their direct sales forces. At the time, it felt great competitively because we had fewer people to compete with. But the challenge now is, that if you're looking for someone to succeed in your business and you haven't found that person yet, then there's huge competition for the people who would be the natural successors. And if we think about who the natural successors are, they're people who have probably had a family and that family has begun to grow up or has grown up. They're people who are ready to take on the challenges of running a business and succeeding into that business. And they're people who have probably paid down some of that mortgage debt and other stuff that they might have so they can actually afford to buy the business off you. But because we're missing that half generation, then more often than not, we're going to people who are still actually having babies, young families. They're actually, because of credit crisis, moving into their own properties later, and they don't have maybe the confidence or finance to actually succeed and to take over your businesses as much. So the strategic model needs to sort something out at this end. It needs to create opportunity for more people to actually buy into your businesses. So I think that if we are going to fix the problem or challenge the problem, I think it is doable. But if we're going to do it in the next five years, for those of you in the room who are wanting to retire in the next five years when asked, who haven't maybe got a plan, then we need to start now We could have done with starting 15 years ago, of course, but we need to start now. Now, this is what we do at Next Gen Planners, but this isn't really what that's about. It's that bit in the middle there. The Next Gen Planners membership. Next Gen Planners started off as a Facebook page and a membership organization. And the one thing that, over the last three years in its existence, I've learned very much, is that if we are looking to attract new talent, new talent has a very different viewpoint than I had when I was first coming into the profession, And that many of us probably had. I was a child of the, I'm going to call myself a child of the 80s. Because that was when I was conscious about life. Of course, born in the 70s. But we very much grew through a time where if you were to win, chances are somebody else had to lose. That was the culture. That was a way that things were portrayed. It was very binary. In this community, in the XM Planners community, there is no loss. Everybody supports everybody else. Everybody is absolutely comfortable in sharing their vulnerability, in sharing their ideas, and in asking questions. Even if those questions might seem a bit daft, everybody asks questions. And so in the last couple of years, we have 45,000 Slack interactions. Slack is the the, um, message board for the uh, organisation. And those Slack interactions are supportive, they're productive, and they grow people's understanding and knowledge. And it's very easy for those people who are looking to bring new talent in to think, right, what we're going to do is we're going to bring this talent in and we're going to teach them. This group and the group of people who are coming through, particularly out of the universities I'm meeting, they've been skilled in critical thinking. They're less inclined to respond to being told what to do and far more inclined to ask questions. They still want to understand, but their method of understanding is very different to that that we ever had. It was classroom based, it was this is how you do it, if you don't like it that way, then there's a different option for you, but it isn't with this organisation. That changes now, people are more discerning. If we're going to attract and continue to retain top talent, we need to change our culture as a profession, I'm not saying anybody individually here. This is a cultural professional thing for me. that we need to change that. I was having um, lunch with somebody last week, and he was near to tears in frustration because there was a mismatch between the amazing company that he had joined and what he was expecting them to do and what was actually happening in reality. And it isn't because the company that he's joined isn't amazing. It isn't because he is, has any flaws in his, his, the way that he actually adapts and his effort. It is simply communicative and culturally between him and the organization. The organization expects him to do his time. They expect him to sit and to learn and to do a process. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but they aren't allowing for this idea of critical thinking and challenge it's all too easy for us to say to somebody, we already thought of that 15 years ago, it didn't work, we're not going to do it. It's a different thing to engage from a different viewpoint and perspective. So if we're developing talent, we need to understand. We need to understand those significant cultural differences. But I think ultimately we have four outcomes in the succession model. I'm gonna borrow this from Donald Brunsfeld, as some of you will have noticed. We have unsuccessful unsuccession. Unsuccession, I would call selling your business to somebody else. It may be a consolidator. It may be a larger practice. You may just look to merge. But ultimately, we're not looking at a succession model there. We're looking at a sale. And if we're looking at a sale, all the various <coughs> options within there, where I think that many of the sales are likely to fall down in the next five to ten years will be because of client demographics and the fact that there are so many trying to sell at the same time. If you think about your client bank, what's the average age of your client? If I'm somebody who's looking for value in buying a business, I want to be able to see income for the next 10 to 20 years. That's the way the value is for me. If the income stream within your business is through demographics, modeled looking like it's not going to be there in 20 years, then that's maybe something to address. So unsuccessful, unsuccession will be those organisations that I think they're going to sell, but when it comes down to it, there's a lot lower value than they were expecting within their business. Uns- unsuccessful succession, there we go. i am seeing lots of S's and lots of U's there. Unsuccessful succession next. So unsuccessful succession is often about trust. You'll find somebody who you think is going to be your successor, You will have a five-year plan. It may be a loose five-year plan. It may be a detailed five-year plan. But I often see one or both parties just beginning to slightly undermine trust as that time goes on. And how do we do that? Well, oftentimes it's only little stuff. It's only tiny moments of inflection where actually there was an opportunity to reinforce the plan, and it didn't happen. An advisor, a senior advisor looking to hand a business over um, has a plan that actually in three years' time they'll start to hand over the top clients. Three years comes, I'll start handing the top clients over next year, I'm not quite ready. Just little things like that begin to undermine trust. Ah, now when we, uh, we were going to, when we originally talked about the, the plan, that was the delta, that was a figure that we were wanting, but of course things have moved on, we've grown the business, we want the delta to be different now. That undermines trust. Any changes can actually, if you're not talking them through, can begin to see people entrenched. And I've seen breakdown of succession plans that have been running for three or four years with only another 12, 18 months as a plan break down in such a tiny amount of time. And so having a clear plan, running it over a long period of time, and understanding that you need to talk to each other on a regular basis and allow each party to challenge but in a confident and comfortable position is really important. Successful unsuccession, of course, is those organisations and businesses that will sell their business. They will understand where the value in their business is. They'll be looking at their client demographic in terms of what their target new client acquisition might be, and they'll be already building for that. And then, of course, successful succession. Organisations who identify talent by listening as well as by speaking, who develop that talent both technically and with all of those soft skills and behaviours, and who are authentic. Because that's one of the things that culturally the next generation of our profession will be less tolerant of, is lack of authenticity. And so be open, be honest, be transparent. And where there are problems, tell people there are problems. Where actually there are successes, celebrate those successes, but do it together and do it openly. That's how you retain people if they understand and feel that they are part of a business, then they will stay in that business. I think that we've got a real opportunity over the next five to ten years to assist that next generation through and to really um, succeed in succession. And I also think as a profession we really deserve that because we are just custodians of the profession and ultimately the goal has to be to leave it in a slightly better state Than we found it. And so, everybody in this room who's been part of that journey over the last 25 years has actually contributed to the fact that we have something better and more professional to hand over to the next generation. We just now need to go and get that job done. Thank you.
1: to uh, stay with us, because um, yeah. uh, we're, we're, we're going to have our first of two uh, advisor panels today, so I'm going to invite up uh, um, four uh, AR principals and Mr. Davis, who's going to uh, host today. Um, if you want to come up, guys, and sit down. Please don't kill yourself on the stage. <laughs> so, um, Hello, everybody. That would um, leave
3: a succession gap if somebody did, though. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, Tim is going to host this
3: next session. Thank you all. yours. That's it.
4: That's that's my clicking done. Um, Hello, everybody. It's great to see you all today. Um, We're really just going to go on the next stage um, from Adam's presentation. Um, Fascinating. What we've got is um, a mixture of your peers who have some experience in this journey, Um, and uh, we're going to sort of talk through some major areas and try and share some ideas. So rather than me introduce everybody one by one, I'm just going to let everybody introduce themselves, give us a little bit of background and your experience in this area,
3: and then we'll go on to some questions.
4: Should we start at that end? Adam, do you want to start?
3: Um, Yeah, hi again. Uh, So um, my time is now spent between um, looking after some of the work that I do at the PFS, so looking at the strategic direction of the the profession, and how we can improve public trust through um, the development of professionalism. Um, some time I spend working with um, small firms, helping them strategically and uh, within their succession model, and then uh, the rest of the time is spent with next-gen planners, um, looking after the curriculum and development program there. Perfect. Thank you, Jane.
5: Uh, I'm Jane Gow from Take Up Financial Planning. We're based in um, um, near Chester on the Wirral. Um, there's we're a team of I think there's 15 of us now, and a mixture of we experience generation with next generation is that the, the term so we've got five um experienced financial planners a mortgage and protection advisor and then we're developing the next generation because i'm looking for a 10-year exit strategy so we're two years along brilliant uh, with that at the moment
4: great so some good ideas to share with us yeah excellent nick
6: okay i'm um, nick howell from Local Financial Management. Um, I, I suppose I'm different from the panel on here. I'm looking to, to, to grow the firm. Uh, I've been with Sense uh, for just about two years now. In a previous role, I've recruited um, 300 plus advisors into uh, you know, a big corporates. Um, um, and I guess about a third of those have been new to the industry advisors as well. My sort of questions around here today are, you know, um, how do we go about
7: doing that within uh, you know, the model we're in today?
4: Okay, perfect. Let's hope we can give you some ideas. Thanks.
7: I'm James Weatherall. My business is (coughs) Weatheralls. We're a city centre firm, six staff, around 80 households that we look after, Uh, modern financial planning, a lot of it built around playing cash flow planning. Uh, I am a guest lecturer at MMU Business School. Uh, I have a lecture slot there trying to encourage and help young people into the profession and run a mentoring programme as well for young people to try and find them opportunities and help them come into the profession.
8: Thank you, finally, Steve. I'm Steve Hendry uh, from Stonegate Wealth Management down in uh, Stone in Staffordshire. Um, We're partly along the way. I'm more uh, in in Nick's category. Uh, We are uh, a a small firm. I'm the sole advisor at the moment. Um, I have um, a a trainee advisor. I've got to say nice things about her. She's in the audience today, Um, but uh, she's one exam away from being qualified. So we, uh, we we started off from a Administrator role through to uh, where we are now. Uh, it's been a s- slow process, but it's uh, it's it's been a, a bit of an eye opener, um, and uh, that's uh, that's where we are at the moment. Wonderful, thank you.
4: And um, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Tim, been around ten years longer than you have, um, and I'm very passionate about this part of the industry because you know I was lucky enough to come through some of the uh, original. Um, roots in. So let's start off. Hopefully, we get, we've got four or five questions we want to pose, and then hopefully, have enough time for some audience questions if there are. Um, so, I really want to start with uh, I'm going to start with you, James, if you don't mind, because you've had some experience in this area, and, and Jane, obviously, some parts for you to add in as well. But, but what made you guys think that actually developing new talent is important to start with? Uh, clearly, there's a huge aging advisor crisis. Average advisor is age
7: 57. Mm-hmm. As Adam said, 10 years' time five five to ten years, huge sway of the profession are going to retire. Uh, Traditionally we've been very poor at bringing people into the profession and um, we definitely need to address that I think. Uh, I came into the profession ten years ago Uh, I was looking for a trainee role in Manchester, I sent my CV around with an article from Citywire talking about ticking time bomb in the advice community and the lack of young blood coming through. Uh, Fast forward ten years I've now run my own firm and all the same problems are still there, so it's not been addressed in the ten years that I've been uh, planning.
4: Okay. Jane, what's
5: um, you I think it's been two things for me. One, I think um, being a mother of four children and seeing my children grow up and going into the world um, career, always had a, a natural interest in the next generation and um, seeing them come through. And two of my daughters do actually work for me. They're here in the room, so fabulous. <laughs> so that's been, you know, sort of the start of that, and and also just recognizing we need to bring new blood into that into it. And the experience we've had, we've got five uh, graduates in the business that have all been D- PFS this year. So they're now all have done exams and are on their way to do level six. And um, just seeing them come through is just amazing. So businesses and safe hands. I've also been a reasonably good delegator over the years, so mm-hmm. I've worked on the basis that if there's somebody that can do it, then <laughs> find somebody to do it. And they're just absolutely fantastic at um, picking up all, as Adam, Adam alluded to, or it might have been Phil, some of the jobs that you don't really want to do. But not too many. But not too many and not too often. Yeah, I haven't if... actually told them that. <laughs> yeah,
4: I, th- I think the cat's out of the bag. Yeah. <laughs> Steve, what about from your perspective?
8: Well, uh, really, just to echo echoing what's been said already by Adam mainly, is that um, my my uh, track record is very similar to yours. Early 90s, uh, hot-housed. I was hot-housed in Nottingham, not London, so slightly less uh, distance to travel. Um, but you do, you, 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 uh, you, you, you're you intensively trained, FPC in, in the first four days, sit the exam on the Friday. Um, <laughs> and that is how the industry works, and, and that just isn't the, the case uh, anymore. Um, so I look around, um, you know, when we've looked at uh, recruiting advisors, uh, you know, the, 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 there is very few out there, and the, 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 the sort of CVs you get through um, don't really get past that stage, uh, you know, for, for a variety of reasons. So that there is really a, a massive gap there in terms of... I mean, obviously, me being in my early 30s, um, oh, yeah. it's not so much of an issue for me. But, uh, uh, but no, joking aside, I was the youngest when I joined the industry, and there are far more people older than me still in the industry than, than coming through. So uh, th- there is that sort of uh, challenge to make sure we do have those people follow through. Uh, and the second reason, very much of a selfish reason, is that I want to be retiring in the next 15, 20 years or so, um, and now is the time to start bringing the, the, those people through who learn about the business and, and do uh, a, a good period of time in, uh, as an advisor and, and learn how to, uh, how, to, how to do it properly. And uh, um, that's, that's the route that we've, uh, that we've taken. Okay. So,
4: Nick, you and I, since you joined, we spent a lot of time talking about recruiting existing advisors. Yeah. Um, so I'm really interested yeah. to see you on the panel now. What are the key challenges that you've been facing?
6: I think just echoing the same same conversation there, you you, you can look at an awful lot of CVs, um, and for a variety of reasons, you know they they either got you know, a lot of baggage which is coming with them, which you don't want to bring into your firm because you know you, you, in this industry the reputation of your firm is that of the advisors, mm-hmm. and you can't risk damaging that by bringing in advisors who are just not going to not going to work. Um, so there's, there's there's that as an issue. Um, I think advisors. Um, Perhaps on uh, you know high salaries or tensions. What happens to their client base? I think for you know, their their client base is frozen where they are. They can't come in. Um, so that's another issue um, around that. Um, it's it, it's just hard, you know. And, and there's an awful lot of competition out there. And there are you know there's you know, we won't name names, but there's there's other uh, integrated models, uh, <laughs> should we just say, um, which are putting you know very big sums of money on sure. the table um, and very high uh, commission splits. Commission splits as well. Yeah. So um, for those advisors that are looking to to, to do something at that time, um, it's it's very difficult to bring them into uh, you know a a, a small organisation.
4: Okay, so, so you've kind of you, you've looked at the existing advisor market. You're kind of echoing. I know a lot of challenges that many other principals that I've spoken to are sharing as well. So what's the big challenge you're facing now in getting into the next gen market?
6: I think it's it's. Uh, for me, it's, it's around the sort of the funding level, really. Okay. Uh, it is. Uh, so when I work for, for large corporates, there's a, there's a you know big finance base there behind that. You can you can afford to invest in the future. You've got a, you've got a recruitment budget you can work to. Um, and I guess it's it's how do you sort of roll that in a, in, a, in a smaller scale? And again, mm. talking about you know other uh, vertically integrated models. You know you'll have an advisor who is uh, exiting, and you know they may have I you don't know, say hundred thousand ongoing fees or whatever and they'll get maybe three, four, five, even six times that figure as an as a exit figure paid for by that model. They'll then pass that on to somebody who's coming off of a graduate-type program or whatever, an academy program, and they will then pick up a loan for that figure. Um, and there's various ways that those models work, um, but that's, I, I can't see how that's gonna work in, in Opal okay. you know, you know, without some sort of external funding facility available. And it's, it's how does that actually work mm-hmm. through? How do you take somebody from, you know, in James's situation where you've got, you know, perhaps people who are um, completely new uh, to the industry, you could get them all the way through to the qualified perspective, and then it's, it's funding that part, first okay. of all, there. And even, even once they're qualified, they're not then going to drop into, you know, producing income for the firm, because they've got a client base behind them and build themselves up that way. So, so it's a long investment of time. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, you've got all the recruiters banging on their doors as well, for the same reasons Adam's saying <laughs> earlier. Yeah. There's a lot of competition out there. Um, and again, historically, um, I, I can think of uh, an advisor who uh, was with Opal. Um, he was six months before, this is perhaps going over some of the other ground, but he's, he's, he was uh, in, a, in a bank six months before um, becoming a qualified advisor with a corporate he was with that corporate for six months, and then they they made him redundant as they pulled out and now they are. And he joined Opal. We helped him grow his business, um, and he, he did fantastically well. He's, he's been about hundred thousand pound a year, so he's a, you know decent advisor. From someone who was a savings investment advisor not so long ago. Um, but then somebody came along and offered a thirty thousand pound lump sum. Sure. To him to go and join somewhere else and things. So so I'm kind of so picking up
4: awesome. I'm picking up two yeah. challenges. So. James, James Steve, how have you funded this program? And then we'll come on to the how do you keep them with you. So obviously, you've you've all got experience of differing levels of funding people (laughs) through that whole journey, as Nick's just articulated. Can you share some ideas? How, How have you handled it? Well,
5: I've never felt that the balance is imbalanced. So I've never felt that, you know, they're expensive. It's an expensive project. They can't you know, all the graduates that we've taken on and they're all here today, they've all grown into the next to yeah. the next space. And salary and remuneration and the cost of all that has all grown with it. And, you know, I, I can honestly say it's worked in a perfect world. And Adam's been with us on this journey, which we've been on, um, you know, for five five or six years. I think Darren's our longest. Um, he was the first one that we took. And they have actually, they, they just absolutely filled the next space that they they go into and you know with that you think you know they're they're taking jobs, they're adding value to the business. Yes, you know, right and, you know, admissibly as a graduate salary it's fairly low, but within sort of two, two and a half years, they're, you know, I would expect to compare to their peers, they're on, mm. you know, sort of good, reasonably income. And and that comes back to us as a business mm. in the value within the business. And it's it's difficult to say how that actually really happens, but it but it does it you know, it seems to work. Mm.
4: Yeah, that
7: added value piece is massive, I think. Yeah. Uh, there's a fallacy that people will come in and they'll be dead weight for a few years yeah. until they actually get up online and they're starting to deliver value. But if you get the right people in, they can deliver value very quickly, I think, if you train them. Mm. Um, yeah, good attitude coming into the business. Uh, we have a structured program where we have a basic salary. We pay for all of the uh, exams but people get a ratchet on their basic salary each time they pass an yeah. exam. Okay. Uh, there's a bonus scheme as well, a team bonus to incentivise people, decent pension. So we try and provide a yeah. good package for people, uh, structured progression, yeah. uh, funded exam study. Uh, we find that, again, the right people coming in are delivering value very quickly. Yeah. Uh, that by no means dead weight. Yeah, so,
8: so. I'm glad he said that because that's what we, we've we've done, and okay. as part of our sort of uh, experiment and and uh, sort of venturing out into it. Um, when Olivia started with us, she started as a as an administrator, but we had a set process of exams that uh, she would be doing, um, increase a little bit of a bonus, but an increase in salary as well. Um, and but every time we did that, yeah. the, the the job changed slightly, and over time, she's become more of a. Uh, uh, sort of administration manager, as it were, mm-hmm. um, and the next steps. Uh, you know, we're looking that um, she will do a little bit of power planning to begin with, uh, as well as the advice role, uh, and then eventually you know, transitioned completely into the advisor role. Uh, it is a slow burner. It's taken us three years from when she started, uh, but it's allowed us to sort of get caught up with things, and it has been a, nat- a fairly natural change over that sort of time.
4: Okay, so I'm not, I'm not ignoring. One of your, your mm. points, which was, so "How do we keep them?" Um, but there's a question from me before that, which I'm personally really interested in: Where do you find them? So, you know, you, you guys are out there, you're, you're bringing people into a structured program, but where are you starting?
5: Well, I grew two of my own,
4: so <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's, a, that's a heck of an investment that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Not, not, not sure many people might want to start that journey again. <laughs> no, no, no. It was a long time ago. Yeah. Well,
5: yeah. yeah.
4: You, you plan well in ahead, yeah. don't you? Yeah. <laughs> So, so, other than other than birthing them and bringing them up, and <laughs> yeah. spending eighteen years yeah. <laughs> looking after them and nurture them into the perfect <laughs>
5: yeah, I think, um, next I th- gen. Yeah, I think for for us, there's a little bit of a small family business attracts a lot of interest within uh, family and friends. We're a, we're a family business, so yeah. therefore, you know, over the years, I've had lots of friends who said to me, you "Can you know so and so come in and do some work experience for a couple of weeks or a couple of months?" We've taken. Graduates on over the five week summer holidays. We we work with Chester University, and we've had a few interns over the five weeks. We just kind of open the doors and say, "Come in and look around," and we'll give you the experience. Some of them go off somewhere else; others stay. Yeah. Darren came for two weeks, and he's here six weeks later, six <laughs> years later. So, um, you know, and it's a good it's it's a it's a little bit of a try before you buy as yeah. well option and all the universities are desperate for these programs they do 12 weeks ones that um 12 month ones six weeks ones and it's just good to get different um people in okay and i went on a boot camp with adam earlier this year at manchester university 30 financial planning students what a fantastic you know way to find people that are just desperate to get out there in our businesses so it's,
3: it's maybe worth just, just mentioning <laughs> yeah, that actually because we um we, we trialled it. We did a pilot um, earlier on in the year at uh, Manchester Metropolitan. So we had 30, um, we had 30 students, um, 30 employee employers, and we put them through their paces during the day, all of the students. And every student got an interview, and um, two of them got placed with the employers that were there. that's got hugely valuable experience beyond that. So we're actually rolling that out this year to 10 universities um, who have specialisms in financial planning. And um, they're free, that's part of our community delivery from Next Gen Planet. so anybody here who is looking to develop new talent, then get in touch with us and by all means go along. Okay. It's, a, it's a day that, you know, you, there's no cost, you can, if you find somebody, you recruit them without recruiter fees, and yeah. uh, you know, it's just a nice way of putting it together. Yeah. Similar experience, guys? Yeah,
7: great, you're scaling up by that. Uh, for me, having been lecturing at the university now for six, seven years, uh, can tap into quite a rich source of uh, talented graduates there i mean lots of great people uh, lots of opportunity to recruit from there the problem i have is that through the mentoring scheme i tend to take on mentees uh, josh and ash and letty are now helping with that and helping to mentor people as well and um, i find the difficulty is actually finding firms to plug them into so i've got young people looking for roles and it's very difficult for to find roots into. Right. Okay.
4: So you've got too many. Yeah. In a yeah. sense. Yeah. 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 Okay. So uh, I want to come back to one of your challenges now, Nick. So you've gone through this long process. You've got a timeline. You've got a plan in place for them. You've worked with these um, grads. Uh, they've got qualified. And then, how do you keep them? How do you stop them? You know, being lured away with offers. From the, from the child catchers of the vertically integrated <laughs> world.
5: Yeah. I would just say it doesn't feel like a long process. It's never, you know, I think it's two years from the day they arrive. And, you know, I remember Charlotte saying to me when she first arrived in the first week about everyone here speaks a different language. Yeah. And to actually, you know, you look at Charlotte two and a half years later and she does all the research and building our investment proposition. So... It really, two and a half years doesn't seem to me a huge length of time mm-hmm. to get somebody from who doesn't really understand the language to, you know, being absolutely amazing. Yeah.
4: At I, I totally agree. I guess what I meant was you've invested a length of time into getting them qualified.
5: But they're doing, um, they're adding value to the business yeah. all the way. As, uh, so it doesn't <laughs> feel like the balance yeah. is, it doesn't feel like I'm out of pocket. No, 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 sorry. To, so I, as I, as I think the question's
4: more about. Well, let me ask the question in a different way. Do you feel any sense of um, need to do anything different to keep them within the business once they are qualified?
5: I think if you do the right things and you treat um, employees and everybody within the business the way that you'd expect to be treated in work, you've just got to have confidence in your own firm, Mm. so we don't stop anybody leaving or going elsewhere or looking, you know, I don't no. really feel that's, that's a particularly major threat. Okay. It's not. Um, I think it's
8: very important as well to deliver what you've promised. You yep. know, yeah. It's going back to what Adam yeah, was saying earlier true. is that if you've got that structure in place that you don't move the goalposts halfway down the, the road because that doesn't help anybody else. And I think, you know, having the structure in place allows you to... Aim for something, and then to have certain um, uh, breaks in it where you can, uh, you know, you, 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 the thing things change, and rolling it into the overall succession plan as well is, 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 you know, we've talked about, you know, buy equity purchase and how we work that into it, you know, and and and, and following through with that and being very open with uh, with the people involved. Okay, I think um, uh, uh, to to.
7: structure progression is everything, and just saying come into our business and we'll. Skill and give you some qualifications. and Maybe one day you'll be an advisor, isn't it? Enough?
8: No, right. you've got to have
7: structured progression, set milestones in terms of study periods, yeah. when your expectations are. People get their qual's. What comes after? What training they'll have? What's their route into actually being an advisor? How will they find their clients? All these things, and actually giving people responsibility, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, letting them get their teeth into challenges. Yeah. Uh, Josh is qualified now and is working with high-profile clients. Uh, not just being given the, the scrappy end sure. of the business. He's yeah, a yeah. genuine, good quality client. He's a great planner. Uh, so it's it's giving people responsibility and creating true structure so they can see their pathway step by step. And something Adam said was about creating future leaders. Uh, I'd like to think that the guys working in my business will progress and will become future leaders of my business mm. and will become stakeholders in my business. And that's all part of the long-term okay. plan is to take them through but not just to be planners, but help them become leaders in my business and stakeholders in my business in okay. the
4: future. Brilliant. Now, this wasn't a question that we talked about previously because, you know, we did a bit of practice to make sure this went smoothly. <laughs> um, but I'm going to I'm going to ambush you. Um, the, the the most frequent question I get asked by principals of firms is, uh, where can I find advisors to recruit? And it's so frustrating because it's the one answer I always have to give, which is I don't know they're very, very difficult. So I'm gonna pose your question. If I had a existing advisor, or you've got a new grad, which route would you prefer to take?
8: I, I think the new grad. I think that the the, the the issue, and it's just the way that the industry has gone, is that since RDR, and the emphasis is more on the ongoing uh, care of clients and, 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 and ongoing reviews, um, I think that um, any advisor who has stuck with it and has done the job properly has kind of done what we've all done is set up our own firms the ones who um, have got their own baggage and are sort of floating through the industry I mean I worked for the co-op for many years and uh, you know there was people that would do a two year stint and then move on to Barclays and Mm -hmm. then two years on to Friends Program and all these sort of places Uh, that just doesn't happen anymore so if you've got people floating out there, there's, you know, you've got to really dig under the surface to find out why they, why they are looking for other opportunities and not doing it themselves. Um, so I think with a, with a graduate or um, you know, somebody that, that hasn't got the, 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 the advising experience, you can mold them into, into what you want them to be and, and, and to sort of change the business, sort of meet halfway, I think, uh, and, and uh, have somebody at the end of it that is, has bought into the culture uh, and and and, and is, uh, is 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 a future leader of the business as well. Brilliant. similar feelings. Yeah,
4: right. yeah.
8: Okay. Nick, is that
4: is that sort of? Yeah.
6: No, it's been, it's, it's been a, a useful uh, conversation today, and I hope it has been for everyone else as well. Because yeah. um, there's you know there are advisors, as you said, and Adam said today, uh, you know there are advisors in my own firm that are looking to retire in the next couple of years. Yeah. So it's you've got to you've got to find some solutions there that's workable for all parties in that in that chain. Yeah. So.
4: Brilliant. So we've got just about enough time, I think, John, have we, for a couple of questions? Couple of, so any, any questions from the audience for this esteemed experienced panel?
7: Observation, but it'll be interesting what the panel think. I joined the industry back in 92, but we seem to apologise when we joined in the 90s, obviously, but we joined and we did that. The emphasis was very much on soft skills because we didn't do no. that, you didn't eat. It was as simple as that. Do you think we've gone a bit too far, Academically, I'm not saying that's not important. A say, I, I. I'm not fellow the saying it's not important. But I'm saying the soft skills should come back, mm. and we
4: do seem to have lost it. It's very important. I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep my views because I'm a soapbox. <laughs> so, soap. panel, what do you think?
3: Can I Yeah. Yeah. I, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> it's Interesting, isn't it? I'm going to say yes. As a president of the Personal Finance Society, I'm going to say yes. I think that I don't think that we've gone too far in um, technical qualifications. I think that the technical qualifications have, have definitely helped support professionalism. And so I don't think that has gone too far. But I think that actually viewing it as binary is, um, is what has happened more than anything. That um, we need to look at the curriculums that we have, I think. And we need to determine which elements of the curriculums actually talk about actually advising a client. If you look across R01-6 to with the CII, which is a benchmark for giving financial advice, if you actually look into those curriculums, there is very little about having a risk profiling... In fact, there's nothing ostensibly about having a risk profiling conversation with a client, discussing fees with clients. Actually, all of those suitability elements aren't in the curriculum. So where the curriculum was actually fit for purpose previously, (coughs) I think it does need to be reviewed. But then, likewise... If you've got somebody who is studying, it doesn't prevent you from doing soft skills development with them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of those people in the room here that actually went through that in the 1990s, um, you've got that. And, uh, you know, taking advisors out, but also role playing. You know, if you think about the people who are really great at their jobs, you know, think about Formula One drivers, you know, Lewis Hamilton or whoever, they go out there and they'll, they'll sit in a car, and they'll drive a circuit, and it might be the first time they've gone live on that circuit, and they'll still put a time in which is astronomical. Why is that? That's because for hours and hours and hours before they've arrived at that circuit, they've been on a simulator practicing. Now, it's a cool thing to get in a multi-million pound simulator of a Formula One car and practice. No one's going to complain about that. What we do is put people in Magnolia-painted offices and say, go through a fact-finding disclosure exercise with us. But it is just as important, and you know, I think that we spend too little time now actually in a classroom situation that is safe, where all of these things and these experiences can come out. So I absolutely mm-hmm. take your point, Paul. Can yeah. I just have
5: one thing mm. to ask? Of course. Um, Is that we've just, as, as they're now level four and qualified in terms of they know what we talk about in a room. Uh, We've just started a programme now um, that they're associate financial planners and they come into client meetings with all the senior financial planners. So hopefully they're picking up those soft skills and all that as well as they move through it. And it's just great experience. So we do all our meetings now with two people in the room.
7: Exposure is everything. yeah, Yeah. And the two aren't mutually exclusive. Uh, The quals are the right of passage, aren't they? But like you say, the soft skills are actually often what make you the better advisor. Uh, I think it's including people very early on in client discussions, encouraging them to spend time with the clients. Uh, my guys will, will be in meetings from the beginning, in, in client meetings, observing how advice is delivered, building their own relationships <coughs> with the clients. As they become a bit more experienced, then I have them start to present cash flow plans on the TV in the room, which is a great way of them um, not giving advice, but having profile and presenting data and information and building profile with the client. So I find that works
1: quite well.
4: Brilliant. And me, yes, 100% agree. Um, have I got I've, one more I, I, or are we going to cut I me off? I think we
1: best not, uh, unfortunately. Okay. We're, we're, we're five minutes over. we quite well pulling back, guys. Thank you very much So
4: I hope you find it um, useful and useful. I just want to thank you all very much for sharing your experiences. Um, and um, hopefully you got something out of it. Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: If you've enjoyed today's podcast and want to hear more, please like and subscribe. And if you fancy a chat about how we can help your business grow, we can be found by the usual channels at Sense Network Limited and at our website, sense-network.co.uk. Thanks for listening.